Thank you. I would like you to turn to Romans chapter 12, and I'll read verses 9 through 13. Uh, should be familiar to us by now, but I hope they haven't lost their luster. This is an amazing call that the Lord gives to us uh, to have us changed inside and out for His glory. Uh, Romans uh, chapter 12, verses 9 through 13. This is God's word. Let uh, love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in the spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in, afflict, in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitali- hospitality. Our text for this morning is verse 12. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Uh, Truly, everything in this section flows from the very first phrase uh, in verse 9. Let love be genuine. You see, when love is genuine, love for God is genuine, you do hate what is evil and you cling to what is good. You don't coddle evil. You cling instead and love the things that God loves. If love is genuine, you love one another with affection, with feeling, and not just an outward show. When love for God is genuine, you show honor to one another instead of wanting yourself to be honored. When your love is genuine, you are not slothful. And we take that to mean not double-minded with pursuit for things of this world and a half-hearted pursuit for God. You are instead loving God fervently. Now look with me at at verse 12. If love is not genuine, if love for God is not genuine, you will be miserable in hopelessness. You will be impatient in affliction, and you won't pray, at least not very much. That's love that isn't genuine. Love that is genuine, then, rejoices in hope, is patient in tribulation, and is constant in prayer. It is clear to me 
that this is a very hard thing to do. The message this morning is not, is not easy. However, I think that it is simple. And by that I mean there is a simple point that we can get. And God works in us these qualities of being able to rejoice in hope and be patient in tribulation and be constant in prayer. And the first thing that we have to get about this, the way that, that we are enabled to live, is to get a clear view of who God is. Who is God, who is therefore worthy of our rejoicing in a future hope. And who enables us, because He is good, to be patient in tribulation and is worthy of our constant prayer. What kind of God can elicit that from His people? And I've only used an unfamiliar word today, and we're going to talk about it as an introduction to this this message, and that is the impassibility of God. The impassibility of God. And And that means that God does not have passions in the same way that we do. That God does not experience emotional changes. That He is not affected by His creation. He stands above it always, is not affected by what He has made. He doesn't have passions like us. He doesn't experience emotional changes at all. Now, does that mean God is uncaring? That He is cold? Apathetic? Aloof? Separate from His world in such a way that He is aloof? That He has no mercy, no love, no anger? No, the point is that God is not a responder. He doesn't have emotional shifts. There's nothing in creation, not me and not you, that can make Him change. And I want you to sit on that for just a moment. This is amazing good news. His disposition towards you doesn't change. He didn't start loving you when you were saved. He didn't start then. It's from before the creation of the world. God is love to His elect children and He doesn't change like you and I do. Now you may, you may be sitting there saying, what? I mean, I, I, read, I read it was reading in Hosea uh, this week and this is what I read. My heart, God speaking, my heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. It certainly sounds like God is changing there, doesn't he? But this is what we call anthropomorphic language. God, the Bible is using human language to help us know God, who is far above us, to help us know him better. All right. My compassion grows warm and tender. Are you willing to say that God is becoming warm and tender? Are you therefore implying that there was a time when he was at least slightly cold and harsh? 
that he's getting better as time goes by, in particular, as when you behave yourself? He's getting, he's getting better? No, he always has had and will have infinite warmth and infinite tenderness towards you. God doesn't change. He does not have emotional fluctuation in accordance with things that are going on in his world. A phrase that a couple of us really like that sort of encapsulates this beautifully is that the best argument that God won't stop loving us is that he never began. You get it? There was never a time when he didn't love us. And that can't change. And so knowing who God is increases our genuine love so that we can, by His grace, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, and pray without ceasing. Pray constantly. Knowing God increases our genuine love so that we can do this thing. We can do what what verse 12 is talking about. Now, let's talk then. We're just going to speak a few minutes then about rejoicing in hope, uh, about uh, being patient in affliction, and being constant in prayer. Rejoicing in hope. Rejoice in hope. It is so easy for us, isn't it, uh, to be happy in stuff. To be happy in things. To be happy in stuff. Uh, We are so preoccupied with today. Two things here, people. Good things in life can make you forget God. Good things can make you forget Him. The Bible speaks this way. When good things come into our lives, there is a possibility, even at times a risk, that God will grow dim and distant. Instead of rejoicing in God, it is so easy for us to rejoice in a raise at work. You finally are getting paid a little bit more of what you should be getting, right? That's the way we think anyway. We rejoice because someone likes me. Kids, not just kids, everybody. Old people do. Older people like We We rejoice when someone likes us, right? Not a bad thing, but it can be too big. We rejoice when our sports team, Maryland wasn't supposed to win heading into Illinois, but they did, and it was wonderful. Just not making sure it's not too wonderful. You see, the scripture says this, the Proverbs, don't give me riches. I may be full. Get full and deny you. Don't give me too much food. I'll get full and deny you. So good things in life can make you forget God, but bad things in life can make you doubt God. If you don't get what you want, then God is not trustworthy. He's not good. Or or on the other hand, we can at least hope. We can hope for things, but hope without joy. And that's a kind of hoping that is a quiet desperation. Some Christians, well, some people go through life, including Christians, is waiting for the other shoe to drop. Just one more piece of bad news. I know it's going to happen, it's just a matter of when. One more illness, one more family uh, tragedy or conflict, one more expensive car repair, 
just something is, the other shoe is going to drop inevitably, which is therefore proof that God is not at who he says he is. And so there's a quiet desperation that can cover our minds and our hearts and our families like a poisonous gas. It just pollutes everything inside. Now, we rejoice in hope. This is, we rejoice in hope by living with an eye to the future. Rejoice in hope by living with an eye to the future. Um, the best, two things I want to point out here. Listen to this. There are a, a, a twin comments here. The best God provides here is never good enough. The best God provides here is never good enough. We expect it to be. We want it to be more than it is. But it's never good enough. Uh, C.S. Lewis puts it this way, if I find in myself a desire no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Simply put, God didn't make you to be fully satisfied here. Put it another way, God didn't make this world sufficient to fully satisfy you here. Do you remember in Greek mythology there was, there was one called uh, Tantalos? Do you remember him? He shows up most famously in uh, Homer's, um, Homer's uh, Odyssey. And Tantalos was, 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 in, was in a lake, a pool of, of, of water, and, and I believe the water was pretty high, and, and he would, he, there was a, a, a low-hanging branch of fruit right above him. And he would, try, he would reach up for that fruit, and as he would reach up, it would just, it would just get higher and out of his grasp. Or he would bend down to drink some of the water and the water would recede. Things were always just out of his grasp. So he was, the verb is, tantalized. And so the world tantalizes us that it offers us something that will truly uh, satisfy our souls. But our fruit is out of reach as well. I'm struck with this. The very best family meal, uh, the very best Christmas holiday you can have, the very best of the relationships that you can have here are whispers. There, there's always a defect, always a defect. They are whispers that, um, that we are not yet in heaven. I want you to see this up on, up on the screen for a moment. We should have a slide coming up. Yeah, I don't know if you've noticed this. This little, this is uh, something that hangs in our house. What jumps out? Home. This is home. This is where we live. This is where we're happy. This is where it's warm and people are invited in. This is, this is what we live for and we can hope too much in it. But in the small print above it, it says, this is not my home. As much as we want to think or do think that this is it, this is the final, final uh, bit, of, uh, bit of blessing, uh, there, thank, you for, thank you for that. We don't base happiness, happiness on things that we can lose. We don't base our happiness on things that are not permanent. So do not... Do not even for a moment... This is a high calling... 
read this from some guy who's more holy than I am. It said, do not even for a moment lose contact with heaven. Do not even for a moment lose contact with heaven. The psalm says this, uh, in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's where joy is to be found. That's where pleasures are to be found here and even much more later. So the very best that God provides here is never good enough, wasn't meant to be. But also, the very worst that God allows here is never too bad. The worst He allows is never too bad. Think of what the Apostle says, My desire is to depart to be with Christ, for that is far better. He was in jail. I will behold your face in righteousness. When I wake, I will be satisfied with your likeness. That's what my focus is on. Not this life. It, it, it amazes me, it strikes me uh, to hear some of the things that are coming out of China these days as the, the Chinese church there is, uh, puts up with, um, with, with, with unspeakable uh, persecution these days. Um, the early reign Presbyterian, Covenant Presbyterian Church recently disbanded a, a, a church of, of eight or nine hundred disbanded just, just the building taken over by the by the uh, by the authorities uh, setting it up for their own for their own use their their pastor Pastor uh, Wang Yi um, sentenced recently to nine years uh, in prison did not even was not even able to see his wife. Uh, during his uh, during his prelimin- uh, preliminary um, um, jail time, and it just separated from his family, and now now nine years. And this is what this is what the Chinese church is saying. Just some of the things that are coming out. This remember remember this is under the heading: the worst God allows here is never too bad. The worst God allows here is never too bad. Listen to this: persecution is God's gift. It's his calling to the Chinese church at time. And we receive it gladly. We're on holy ground here, people. We receive this persecution gladly. Because each uh, joyful, suffering saint is declaring to an unbelieving world and a, and a hostile government... Each joyful, suffering saint is declaring that real life is later. Not now. You do not impress me. You do not intimidate me. Real life is coming. And we see that dimly now. But even that dim glance through a a glass darkly, even that dim glance is enough for us to hope to see him later face to face to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit gives that sweet persuasion that God is good, that He never changes, not ever, and He never changes His mind about you, not ever. And so you are able to rejoice in hope for the good that is coming. Do not, even for a moment, lose contact with heaven. 
Now these three commands uh, string together. They fit together very nicely. Therefore, be patient in affliction. I'm just going to read, now slightly edited uh, from from John Calvin's commentary here. Um, If our joy comes from the hope of future life, if our joy comes from the hope of future life, then patience will grow up in adversities. For no kind of sorrow will be able to overwhelm this joy. No one will calmly and quietly bear his or her cross who hasn't learned to seek happiness beyond this world. What lessons the bitterness of your cross is the consolation of hope. What lessens the bitterness of your cross is the consolation of hope. How that, that inspires us to reach up to a kind of, of life that is so focused on the Lord, but how often our lives can better be described as something like we hang on with grim determination. We refuse to give up. I don't want to be a quitter. I'm going to hang on, but without joy. But joy in our hope gives patience, godly patience in our affliction. I think of what Job said. He said, though he slays me, yet I will trust him. Though he slays me, yet I will trust him. Let's modernize that just a little bit. And, and, and by, by this, um, God... You're, you're killing me down here with all of these things that you've brought into my life. My life hurts. The injustice that I face is real. It hurts. It's not fair. I don't know if I can hold up. You're killing me. But I trust you. I know you. And that gives joy. The Holy Spirit gives joy in our hope. That God is good. God does good to you. The impassibility of God. His mood does not change. His love doesn't shift with your weakness of heart. His love doesn't change. Now, if we love God with hypocrisy, the moment he does cross us, watch out. You know, our, our, kids, our kids can be so sweet and so delightful. Kids, we love you. Be so sweet and delightful. And they can be cooperative when we as parents are doing what they want. But when you don't, when you cross, you have the temerity to cross your children They might just throw a fit. But when God crosses us, gives us something hard, gives us something that stretches us and tests us, we trust Him because He knows what He's doing. You see, Christ's finished work on the cross rules all of our thinking. He endured. He persevered. He took the bitter cup of God's wrath and He drained it to the dregs. We don't. He took all of God's wrath 
the impassibility of God. He is good. He does good. So you trust Him today. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in affliction. And be constant in prayer. Things, we respond differently to trouble in our lives, don't we? What, what is your first impulse when you, when you face trouble? For some of us, it might be self-pity. Um, self-pity that says, God doesn't care, God doesn't know, God has abandoned me. Self-pity that says, my problems are unique. No one suffers the way I do. And I somehow am out of the reach of God's merciful presence and care. And so we are slow to pray. Does God care? Does God hear? And we may even feel disqualified to pray because we realize we're guilty and we feel far from God. Do you hear that? may feel disqualified to cry out to the all-merciful God for mercy for my situation right now. It's crazy. Our God is impassable. He's not... Judging you or putting you away from himself. But the other side, if not self-pity, sometimes it's self-reliance. I've got good genes. I've got determination. I'm smart enough to plan my way out of this problem. So I don't need to pray either. Now we all struggle with the discipline of prayer. Our hearts readily grow cold and our love can become brittle, can break up. And we may even think that prayer is pretty much pointless because God's going to do what He wants to do anyway. But the Christian keeps praying because the Christian never outgrows the need for God. You never outgrow it. Jesus certainly didn't. The Christian life is by its definition beyond our natural abilities and we therefore need grace every single day. Again, Calvin put it this way, every day is a battle and you need God every day. Isn't that simple but beautiful and important? Every day is going to be a battle. Expect it! So you have a posture not of of grim determination but a posture of prayer. A posture of communion with God. Every day you're going to need bread. And so Jesus says, give us this day our daily bread. Every day you're going to be tempted. So lead us not into temptation. Every day you're going to sin. So you need to say, forgive me my sins. Every day you're going to be sinned against. And so you need to be forgiving to others. Every day. Expect it. Expect to be needy. Expect to be dependent. I think, I think um, Habakkuk brings all of this together for us. I want you to turn back with me to Habakkuk. Um, and I don't have the page number. If one of you has the page number of the Pew Bible, just shout it out. Someone have that? I don't have it. I'm not hearing anybody, so you'll have to find it. Habakkuk, uh, Habakkuk uh, great story. Uh, but God is bringing judgment on Judah and the critical, the critical thing. God is bringing judgment on... on the, the nation has already been divided. We're down to two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, and God is bringing destruction now upon them. 
That's not even the biggest problem. The biggest problem is he's using the Babylonians to do it. And that's what just rankles Habakkuk. He argues with God. How can you be using them to punish us? I get it, we've been wandering, but how can you use them? And then chapter 2, verse 4, has that phrase that shows up in the New Testament that is so beautiful to us, and it is this phrase, the righteous will live by his faith. The righteous will live by faith. The righteous will live with his eyes on God, that God knows what he's doing. And then look with me, look with me in, um, in, verse, in, chapter, in chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 16. This is, this is the culmination right here. Um, I hear, and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. What suffering he is enduring as he is deeply disturbed, as he's waiting, he's waiting, trembling. Quivering, rottenness in his bones as he's trembling, as he's, um, his legs trembling beneath him. And then listen, yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. They're in your hands. And then verse 17 takes us to a marvelous picture of contentment. I want you to think about your life. Maybe your children aren't turning out how you'd like. Maybe your children aren't able to be along with you on display in the front row. This is how a Christian family is supposed to look. Maybe your wife is disrespectful. And sometimes you just can't help but react. Sometimes your husband is just so disengaged, you wonder if he's got a pulse. A pulse. Might be your work. It is so boring. How can you handle it? Look, look what Habakkuk says. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, Produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. Agrarian community here. The flock be cut off from the fold, yet there's no herd in the stalls. Everything is taken away. Every sustenance is taken away. You would expect and even applaud the, the, the writer here, the prophet, if he would say, yet I trust in God my Savior. That would be commendable enough. I trust God. He'll get me through this. But that's not what he says. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. You can rejoice where you are today 
Because God doesn't change. Because God doesn't have mood swings. You can rejoice in that future hope that even now you get a glimpse of. You can be patient in your affliction today. And that praise can be fueled by Habakkuk's prayer. And I urge you, I urge you to feast your eyes, fasten your eyes upon the Lord Jesus and the Holy Spirit works in you as you behold Him who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despised its shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. Jesus endured that for you. And through Him, you can do that too. Let's pray. Father, even as we um, look at this passage, it seems, it seems uh, out of our reach. It seems so beautiful and clean that we wonder if we can get there. And we're so thankful that you have given us this gift of prayer. And we plead for you, with you uh, for the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives. That, that beholding the beauty of Jesus, we would be able to live this life with sobriety and with, with joy, um, with, with wisdom and right thinking. I pray for each person uh, within the hearing of my voice that each of us, Lord, would, would uh, be persuaded of your beauty and that knowing you is worth it and that following you is, is not just safe, but it's beautiful. If there's anyone here today who has never come to put, cast their cares and their sins and their worries upon, upon you, Lord Jesus, that you would enable them by grace to do that just now. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are on the move in your people. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.